Welcome to the August 7th evening sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. The scripture is Exodus chapter 3, and the sermon is entitled, How Do We Face an Uncertain Future? Delivered by Revival Guest Speaker Dr. David Wheeler from Liberty University. Is it safe to go to school? How about this? Is it safe to go to church? Guys, if you don't realize the church is being attacked, then you're just, you're ignoring the, the, the reality of what's happening. I mean, there was this a church shooting in, in Texas just a few years ago. In fact, I, I remember when I moved back to Fort Worth, Texas to teach at Southwestern Seminary in 1999, my wife interrupted me in Wednesday night service, and I went out and watched live reports of Wedgwood Baptist Church. I don't know many of you have ever heard of that, but seven people lost their lives that night. A man was reading the newspaper and happened to see that they were ha- going to have a prayer service that night for see you at the pole at the church And he showed up that night and just began to shoot. Seven people lost their lives. Guys, think about where we are in the world financially. Think about where we are, what's going on and taking place all around us. We face an uncertain tomorrow. I mean, come on, guys, through COVID, the the suicide hotline went up, I mean, in the first three months went up 60%. Just think about what we're facing, what we're looking at as a culture. And let me just tell you this. The church's response cannot be to put more locks on our doors and buy more guns to put on our shelves. Not that I don't like to buy guns. It's not that I'm against guns. It's the simple fact that we think that if we'll just protect ourselves more, that it'll be okay. No. God put us here to change this culture. God put us here for the gospel's sake. He didn't put us here to run. He didn't put us here to run. He didn't do that. You know, it's interesting. I tell my class this all the time. When you look at the full armor of God, the only part of the body that's not covered is the backside. You know why? People say, well, because God's got your back. Yeah, that's true. It's because retreat is not in God's language. We're supposed to keep going forward. We only expose ourselves when we turn and we run. Guys, the, the church needs to wake up. The church needs to wake up. Listen, I've said this many times, and we would never have had social programs in America if the church had simply been the church in the first place. Loving people, caring for people, taking care of people. Listen. We've got a choice. We can either wake up and face the uncertain tomorrow and the harsh realities of what are going to come at us, or we can run and we can hide and we will lose the generations after this. We have to wake up. When we look at this passage, it's real simple. This is the passage when Moses is before the burning bush. Most of us have, can remember hearing the burning bush story when we were in, in vacation Bible school, right? The only difference is I saw it on, a, on a, one of those flanographs. <laughs> and, the fly, and the fire was a little orange dot right there, you know. Y'all remember that, don't you, some of y'all? If you don't, then just for good old times' sake, you should do that one Sunday, okay? What happened? Moses was out taking care of his livestock, his father-in-law's livestock. 
And he saw a burning bush and he went and he, he heard God say to him to take his shoes off. He was on holy ground. He laid down and God began to speak to him. And he said, Moses, I've heard the prayers of my children. You know, and they're, they're in bondage in Egypt. It's been 400 years. I've heard their prayers and I'm going to release them. Moses' heart had jumped out of his chest because, you know, he killed an Egyptian guard trying to protect him. He wanted to see the children of Israel let loose. But boy, he sure sunk when he heard God say, but guess what, Moses? I'm going to send you to take care of it. I prepared you in Pharaoh's courts. You know the culture. I'm sending you back. Listen, right then, Moses faced an uncertain tomorrow because as he went back, they could have met him at the gates because he killed an Egyptian guard. They could have put him to death right away. Moses said, who am I that I should go before the children of Israel? What did God say? You remember? He said, don't worry, Moses. Don't fear, for I will what? I will be with you. Wow. Look at Joshua 1. Sometime, Moses has just died, and Joshua is going to be taking the children of Israel into the promised land. And what did God tell Joshua? He said, Joshua, as I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. Everywhere for where your foot shall trod, that place shall be yours. What did Jesus tell his disciples when he sent them out? He says, don't worry, I will never leave you, nor what? God is with us, right? So what does Moses, how does Moses respond? He doesn't respond like Isaiah, Lord, you know, here my Lord, you know, just send me, take me. He didn't do that. What did he do? He responded by, Lord, when I come before the children of Israel and they ask me about your name, what name shall I use in reference to you? Now, guys, let's be honest here. Most of us, <laughs> we don't take names real seriously. Come on, how many of y'all have a name of an ancestor who didn't want that name either? It usually shows up in our middle names, you know. That's why nobody ever writes down their middle names. We just put an initial, you know. It's true. My grandmother, I mean, I'm from Tennessee. My grandmother, she was a twin. Her name was Leslie Lorel. Her sister's name was Leslie Roselle. <laughs> That's like grits and gravy country, guys, I'm telling you. When I was in junior high, this is no joke. I had two guys in junior high I knew their names. They were twins. Their names were Fred and Freddie. <laughs> How does that happen? Don't do that to your kids. But guys, names meant a lot. The name Isaiah means salvation of Yahweh, salvation of God. So what was he asking? He was just, you see, the name Isaiah defined the message of Isaiah, the ministry of Isaiah, the man Isaiah. He was asking God, can you deliver? So what did God do? He stamped his name on this. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. He said, I am. Well, go tell him I can do this. So what does the name Yahweh mean? How does he define that? Well, it's pretty interesting when you look in the passage because the first thing he does, he says, you go tell them the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, have sent me to you. Why is he sending them backwards? Why is he pointing to others before him? Because it was the way the Jews were trained. It's the way they were trained to think. We as Westerners, we're trained to look at the future and just march into the future. And we, we continually make the same mistake twice. Come on, some of you made the same mistake twice before you walked out of the house tonight. Come on. We do that all the time. The Jews were trained to put their back to the future and look at the past. Why do you think there were all those feasts in the New Testament? Like the Passover feast. The reminder that what? 
That the blood of the Lamb is what saved their lives then. The blood of the Lamb saves our life today and forevermore the blood of the Lamb will save us. Amen? That's what the picture is all about. So what was he telling them? He was saying, listen, as you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I want you to know that I protected and took care of them. I heard their prayers. And guess what, Moses? I've heard your prayers. And before there would be the plagues, before there would be famine, before there would be all that he would face, Moses knew that he could face, he could step off into an uncertain tomorrow. Why could he do that? One simple principle. Don't ever forget this. Because whenever you get there, you'll immediately realize that God's already there. Guys, in 2019, October of 2019, I got a call from my doctor. I'd had a biopsy the week before. And he said, David, you need to go find, go back to your office. He said, I need to tell you a couple of things. And my doctor told me, he said, Dave, you, uh, he said, we found cancer in your prostate. And then he, I just, I've waited my whole life thinking, I hope I'd never hear that. But I've always wondered, what would I say if I did hear that? And it was funny because I began to smile, began to just kind of all snicker. He said, you're nuts. I said, no, sir, I'm not. I said, I said, I can't explain it, but I've been preaching this for 40 years that you could trust God no matter when it is. And I said, you know what? I was right. I didn't know for two and a half months what kind of cancer I had. That's the next morning, my best friend in the world for 35 years died of prostate cancer and I preached his funeral that Saturday and for that next two and a half months I didn't have one day where I was like I'm worried about it. no never never I found out later on that it's not aggressive and all those kinds of things but let me tell you something when I when I was standing there in that moment God was already there he was he was around me he was with me he was within me I knew that without a doubt. Some of you have lost a job. Some of you are struggling in your marriage. Some of you are struggling with hidden sins that nobody else knows about. And you don't know what you're going to do and how are you going to face tomorrow. And I'm telling you, if you'll trust God when you get there, he's already there. He's already there. How do I know that? Well, it goes back to, you may ask me how I know that because it goes back to our story, actually Kara's story. 1989, my wife was pregnant with our second child. And I already told you a little bit of what was happening. It was the week before Thanksgiving in 1989. I just accepted a call to go to a new church. But that Friday night, I took Debbie to an urgent care unit. She, was, she wasn't feeling good. and They sent her home because she was pregnant. The next day, I took her to the emergency room. They did the same thing. I had to drive to the church that Saturday night to have dinner with the church for Thanksgiving. And the next day I was letting them know that I was going to be leaving. I called Debbie that night. She said she was fine. I called her the next morning. She said she was fine. That, that Sunday night, you got to understand, I was 28 years old at the time. 28 years old. I, I went on my first date with Debbie when I was 14 years old. I've known her since I was in elementary school. I fell in love with her in the sixth grade because she could kick a kickball further than any girl in the whole sixth grade. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely the truth. 
She told me, she said, I used to walk by your house. And she said, and when you, you were mowing your grass without your shirt on, she said, I'd sit there a long time. <laughs> she don't do that anymore. <laughs> it was just funny. I mean, what happened was, ninth grade, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting home one night, and I'm watching Monday Night Football with my dad. And, my, my, you know, and I look at my dad, and I say, Dad, there's this beautiful brunette girl in my class. Her name's Debbie. I said, if I can get her to go to the football game with me Friday night, would you pay her away and take us? Because she ain't going anywhere without wheels of money, you know what I mean? And my dad's like, my dad looks at me. He's, he was a big old country boy, and he looked at me, and he started laughing so hard. He rolled off the couch, and best I can remember, he kind of bounced. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, son, if you can find a woman that dumb, that blind, and that desperate, sure, I'll take you. I am not, I'm not lying, guys. I'm not lying. Hey, maybe y'all had a father like mine, built up your self-image. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, we started going together. We didn't go anywhere because there was no place to go. And we stopped dating about a month later. Two years later, we started dating again. And seven years after that, I married Debbie. When I walked in that apartment that night, I found Debbie bent over a trash can coughing up blood. I got her to the hospital as soon as I could the next morning. The doctors began to run tests on her, try to figure out what was going on. But as you can imagine, because she was pregnant, they were so limited with all the things they could do. So Monday went by, Tuesday went by. The bleeding was getting worse. Wednesday morning, the doctor, Dr. Nickel, he a, was a deacon in a local Baptist church there in Fort Worth. Great, godly man. He went in, they did the probe into Debbie's lungs. He met me out in the hall. And he said to me, he said, David, he said, there's, he says, there's a couple things you need to understand. He said, and this is, this is going to be hard to hear. He said, first of all and foremost, he said, we don't know why Debbie's sick. We don't know why she's bleeding. We don't know how to stop it. And he says that if it doesn't stop soon, her body's going to grow so weak, she's going to miscarry your baby, and your baby's going to die. And then he said this. He said, and... Your wife's going to die soon after that. Now I want you to know, just being honest with you, I wasn't a good father. I wasn't a good husband. I wasn't good at much at anything. I was one of those kids who had a whole lot of charisma growing up, but never had the character to match it. I was headed to a catastrophe had God not broken me. It's just the truth. I have a friend of mine who fell a couple years ago, and this is what he told me. He said, my platform outdistanced my character. That's exactly where I was headed. Because that's where pride will take you every time. And something happened to me when he told me that. I started to do something I've never done in my life without having broken a bone or something. All of a sudden, I just started shaking. I started crying. Didn't know why. Didn't understand. You see, the world was all about me. Let me just say something. If it's all about you... You're going to one day wake up and it's going to all be, all, be all about regret because you're going to miss the greatest blessings of your life. It's just the truth. So I did what every self-respecting man in this place would do. I walked over. In the middle of my tears, I picked up the phone. I called my mama because I'm a mama's boy. She spent the next three weeks with me down in Fort Worth, Texas. The next day was... Thanksgiving in 1989, they moved Debbie to a full ICU unit. The bleeding was getting worse. Friday came. Saturday morning, they allowed me to take my 
two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Dana, in to see their mom. When they pulled back the curtain into her room, they had her sitting in a chair, and she was wheezing like this. Back in the corner, had tubes coming out of her. The moment Dana saw her, she began to scream, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. She started running across that room. I had to grab her and pull her back. And she was screaming all the way. Debbie was crying. I was crying. Dana was screaming. She didn't calm down. I got her down to the, to the lobby. I drove her to the airport. Debbie's dad and stepmom met us at the airport. Those days, they let us go back to the gate. I was standing there, and the, the lady working there, she came out, and she said, Mr. Wheeler, your father-in-law told me about this situation. He said, he said we're going to make sure you're the last one to go on the plane. You hold on to your daughter as long as you can, and I did. So finally, I had to walk her over there, and I watched her go down that little ramp. And she walked, turned around, and about halfway down, had this little bag in her hand. She looked at me as if to say, Daddy, why are you abandoning me? And I said, sweetheart. Keep going. I'll call you tonight. I'll let you know how mommy's doing. As soon as she went around that corner, I headed out to the car. I got out to the car. I turned it on. There was a Christian radio station on. There was an old Wayne Watson song talking about watching your children grow up in the front yard and, you know, and play and, and wonder who they would marry one day. And I began to think about that girl I just dropped off on the plane. And the closer I got to Fort Worth, I started thinking about that little baby. When I got there, the doctor met me and said, Mr. Wheeler, your wife is so, she's so far gone. She's so exhausted, tired. If we don't put her into a chemically induced coma tonight, she will die. She's worn out. I stood there with my wife. This is no exaggeration. And I held her hand. I've loved her since I was 12 years old. And I held onto her hand. Watched her as they intubated her and filled her full of morphine. And not once did I ever tell her that I loved her. And there was a good chance I may never have seen her in this life again. Because when you are so consumed by yourself, you don't think about anything but you. Your life is driven by what you, don't, you desire, what you want. And what did Jesus say? When a man gives up his life, he will gain it. When a man learns to die, he will learn to live. I tell my students all the time, a faith that you're not willing to die for is a faith you'll soon not be willing to live for. Mm. I watched as they put Debbie to sleep. And Sunday went by, Monday went by, Tuesday, Debbie's kidneys began to fail. The doctors said, Mr. Wheeler, we, we, unless we can figure this out, we, we don't give Debbie much more than a 25% chance of making it. The next day, I, next night, I went out to dinner. It was, had a fr freezing cold there in Fort Worth. Had an ice storm that come through, and I got back to the hospital. We didn't have phones in those days, so they couldn't call me. When I walked into the, to the respiratory care unit, the doctor, the nurse met me there and said, Mr. Wheeler, the doctor's been looking for you for hours. Can you go in there and wait? I'll call him right now. And I went into Debbie's room. There was one light on behind her. The only movement was the, her chest going up and down. The only sound was the respirator. And I remember grabbing hold of her hands and holding onto her hands. And they were kind of cold and stiff. And I started telling her how much I loved her over and over again. Debbie, I love you. I love you. You have to make it, baby. Come on, I love you. And she couldn't hear a word I was saying. Like I said, if it's all about you, you will eventually live with regret. A few minutes later, the doctor walks in and says, Mr. Wheeler, we know what your wife has. Debbie has an autoimmune disease. It was, used to be called Wegener's disease. It's an autoimmune disease similar to like lupus. 
He said, we're going to have to give her a large dose of the chemotherapy to knock her antibody count down so that somehow her body can begin to fight back. He said, but you'll have to sign for us to do that. And I thought, why do I have to sign? He said, because we don't know what that's going to do to your baby. So I walked out in the hall. I stood there for a few minutes, and the nurses gathered around me, and I just started crying. I couldn't help it. And God took me back to this passage. You see, the definition of the name Yahweh, get this, it means I will always be what I have been. I will always be what I have been. You see, God is not just past. He's not just present. He's not just future. He transcends all of this. The reason why he was telling them about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is because he also wanted to point them forward to a God who would always be there. I will always be what I have been. And that day, I remember sitting there, just, just laying, I mean, standing there, and I was weeping. And, and as I closed my eyes, God took me back to this passage. One of my professors in seminary told me that definition. And God said, remember, David, I will always be what I have been. You can trust me. No matter what happens, trust me. I went over and I signed that piece of paper. I went in and I put my hands on Debbie's stomach. And for the next several hours, I stayed there as they gave Debbie her first dose of chemo. And I felt the baby kick for hours. I didn't know if I'd ever know that child alive. About 3.30 in the morning, Debbie's mom come and drug me away. And she said, you need to go get some rest. I went home that Thursday. Got a few hours rest. Came back that Thursday. Debbie was... Sick as she could be, already she was having dry heaves literally on the respirator. She was, the chemo was just harp, horrible. And I just, I couldn't control it anymore. I was just weeping constantly. I went home about six o'clock that night. And let me just tell you this I did what every single one of us needs to do. Some of us have been Christians way too long. It's been way too long since we spent time at an altar. It's been way too long since we've been, been real and honest before God. It's been way too long. We don't use phrases like rededicate our life to Christ anymore. We don't talk about those things. It's like we, we want to try to spend more time convincing people how good they are than let us understand that if we were that good in the first place, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. Guys, I don't care how old we are. I can remember the days when the altars were full. You wonder why the churches are drying up because the altars aren't full anymore. But that night I went back to my room, back to my apartment. I locked myself in the back room of my apartment and I laid face down in that carpet. If I could have liquefied myself in that carpet, that's how low I felt. I was done. I was through. Everything out of me was gone. And I just began to weep and pray and confess my pride, my anger, my, my sin. And, and, I, and I began to pray for my wife and my daughters and pray for them. And I don't know how long I was praying, just calling out to God. It could have been an hour or two. I don't have a clue. All I know is there was a moment when all of a sudden that room just filled up with God's presence. It was the most amazing sense I've ever had in my life. It was like all of a sudden, I was, like I was falling off a building and these big hands just reached out and just caught me. And it was this most stable but unstable sensation I've ever had. And everything in my flesh wanted to grab hold of something. And I could, I could just sense God in my spirit saying, David, don't grab hold of anything here. Hold on to me. Trust me. And I let go. That moment forever has changed my life. 
You see, guys, very rarely do we get serious before God and let God really do within us what he wants to do. Very rarely do we stop long enough to actually hear God. Because you know why? Because we got phones. We got everything else. If Satan can keep us distracted, he'll keep us distant from God. Come on, any distracted folks here? Listen to me. Understand this, guys. That night changed my life, my ministry forever. God broke me in ways that I had never been broken. And you know what? I was done. My wife will tell you she'd been married to two different men, and it's the same guy. <laughs> it's true. I went back to the hospital that Friday. I thought things were going to get better. Debbie contracted a blood clot. The doctors had to do emergency surgery. Anesthesiologist said, Mr. Wheeler, she's the most unstable patient I've ever worked on. She could die before she gets down the hall. I want you to know, an hour and a half after she went into surgery, she was back in that room. I found out later on, this is no exaggeration, there were literally thousands of people all over the United States who were praying for Debbie. I shared our testimony in North Carolina several years ago, and a lady walked up to me, about 70, 75 years old, and she said, Mr. Wheeler, she said, I have a prayer ministry. I pray about four or five hours every day. She said, I keep a really, just a book of what I'm praying about. I write all these things down. She said, I can go back to the time you're exactly, you're talking about, and I remember God laying on my heart to pray for a young woman who was pregnant, who was very sick. He said, she, she said, I never knew who she was until tonight, and God convinced me, told me it was your wife I was praying for. Now, now, if that happened once, that might be, you know, just a coincidence. That's happened dozens of times, guys. Because God's ways are not our ways. The next day, I came back to the hospital, went to eat lunch after lunch. I ran down the hall. We heard an emergency call to go to respiratory care. I ran down the hall. Debbie's mom was outside with her hands over her face. She was scared to death. People running in and out of Debbie's room. She'd watched her mother die when she was 17. She was afraid. She was watching her daughter die too. She wouldn't even go in. I ran into Debbie's room. There were probably 20 people around her. We didn't know what was happening. I remember backing up against the wall right outside of Debbie's room in that, 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 that ICU unit. And God took me back to the same passage. And once again, he said, trust me. I will always be what I have been. Trust me, David. No matter what happens, trust me. I stood there with my mom on Debbie's side, on one side, and, and, and Debbie's mom on the other side, and, and I'll never forget this. What we, they told us, they came out and told us, there was a nurse who was assigned to Debbie that day. Debbie's regular nurse was sick. Literally, God placed this nurse in there at the right time. She was the only nurse in all of the ICU, had any neonatal experience. They were taking Debbie off of a cat, off of a, catheter because she had an infection and they were going to put her on her bedpan and when they did that her, her mucus plug came out she, she, she ran out and she said look the baby's coming call the neonatal care people when she got back in, back in this is no exaggeration my wife had miscarried our little baby in that, best, that bedpan that nurse knew exactly what to do to the doctors got there and we stood there 30 minutes later not having a clue what was taking place in that room And then they wheeled out. Go ahead and bring up the first picture. They wheeled out a little incubator. Inside that little incubator was Kara. 
One pound, 15 ounce. That's my mom holding a dollar bill over top of her. Kara. Kara in Greek means gracious gift. So we had her hooked up to a respirator on one side of the hospital and Debbie hooked up to a respirator on the other side of the hospital. Bring up the next picture. This was Debbie. 1989. It was her 29th birthday. If you look at the bottom there, you'll see Kara. I held on to Kara that day for the first time. She weighed a pound and 10 ounces. Her hands wouldn't wrap around my little finger. She was so small. She literally wear, you know, cabbage patch baby clothes. I'm sure you guys can relate to that. That's how small she was. Let me tell you about Debbie. The doctors didn't give her much of a chance of coming home. They gave her a much larger chance of dying. But about three and a half weeks after that picture, we wheeled Debbie out of the hospital. She couldn't walk. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't take care of herself again. She was too weak. Listen, in 1990, they told us that Debbie would have two more years to live. I kissed her before I left tonight. Trust me, I always do. How does that happen? We had half a million dollars of medical bills the first six months. Took everything. We lost everything. Had to cash in what little retirement I had. All of it. It was gone just to keep from filing bankruptcy. We didn't pay our medical bills in the same year for four years. And you know what? We never missed a meal. We never missed a tithe. We never missed a missions offering. God took care of every need. In the last 30 some odd years, Debbie's been on chemo 20 something of those years, on and off. She's had five joint replacements. Five. She now has what's called MDS. Her, her body, her hemoglobin's too low, and she takes shots every few weeks to boost up her hemoglobin. And, and she's been real sick this last year. And we're praying. We're praying there's a new medication that just came out, and they're going to start that with her in October, that hopefully that's going to help her even more. But we've walked this way together, seriously. I've been with Debbie at least two or three times when she's relapsed, and they didn't think she was going to make it. Bring up the next picture. Kara. That was her when she was seven years old. We found out when she was four and a half years old, she had mild cerebral palsy. Let me tell you something. They put leg braces on that girl. She had run around like crazy. She was independent as she could possibly be. She said, I'd do it myself. <laughs> she was seven years old. She got her leg braces off. And she wanted to play softball like her sister, Kara, and like her sister, Dana. So she played on the Lassie League. She played on the, the, the Rugrats. <laughs> She played right field. She sent out there and she go, batter, 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 swing. And she couldn't throw the ball from me to the end of this bench here. She didn't care. As long as she got her popsicle at the end of the game, that's all she cared about. It's true. I'll never forget the fourth game of the year. Kara had not got a hit. And we were driving to the park. And I could see her in my rearview mirror because her seat was back there. I could see her on her booster seat back there. And she, she was looking up just out the window. And I said, hey, Kara. And she looks at me, yeah, daddy. I go, sweetheart, you've not got a hit. She looked at me like, what's a hit? <laughs> I said, honey, you've not got a hit yet. You need to get a hit. Because they're throwing the ball from 35 feet away. And 
you know, and she hadn't got a hit, hadn't come close to getting a hit. I said, sweetheart, if you get a hit tonight, I will take you to Toys R Us and buy you anything you want. Her eyes got real big. All of a sudden, she, she wanted to know what a hit was then. True story. About four innings into the game, Kara comes up to bat. The coach is out there throwing the ball 35 feet away. Somehow, the Holy Spirit got to hold the ball in the bat at the same time because, boom, they hit. Ball goes down the third baseline, stays fair. She takes off with the legs flying everywhere, arms flying to the first base, got there as fast as she could. And when she got on top of first base, I am not exaggerating, the whole park had been waiting for her to get a hit. Both sides of the benches cleared and came out on the field. Everybody had a party right out in the middle of the field. All the parents were going crazy. The whole place is going crazy. Kara's standing on first base like this right here, and I'm like, no big deal, you know. And I walk over there, and I pick her up. I go, oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. And she says, Daddy, when do we go to Toys R Us? <laughs> Listen, they told us that little girl would never walk, she would never talk, she would never function, she'd never be able to do anything. She graduated Brookville High School in the National Honor Society. She graduated Liberty University in 2013. She was one of three students that they recognized at graduation in 2013, told her story in 2013. Six months later, six months later, she was in the Philippines working with families of handicapped children. We're going back next spring together. She now works for our prayer ministry at Liberty. Guys, we understand what it means to face an uncertain tomorrow. We do. How do you face an uncertain tomorrow? You face it with a God who is already there. You trust him. There's four things I learned through this. I'll share with you real simply. Number one, God is sufficient for everything we face in life. God is sufficient for everything we face in life, no matter what it is. He is our hope. You may be struggling. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. I don't know. I was addicted to pornography as a 14-year-old. I struggled with that up in the first few years of my marriage. I understand the hard, how hard that can, difficult that can be. But I can tell you this, just acting like it's not there, trying to ignore it, trying to will it away. It's not going to make it go away. You need to lay that before God and let God help you and then get the accountability to work with you, whatever that addiction is. Maybe you're facing all kinds of debt. Maybe, maybe you've, you've lost your job. Maybe, I don't know, maybe like me, you, you've got cancer. Or maybe whatever the struggle may be that you're facing, I don't know what it is. You know what? Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, and if that's true, you face the greatest uncertain tomorrow of all. You need Jesus. God is sufficient for everything we face. Number two, number two, God is all about salvation. He wants a person, personal relationship with us. He wants a personal relationship with us. He's all about salvation. Let me just tell you this, if you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, all you have to do is understand that we are all sinners, that we are separated from God, and it doesn't matter how much work we do to try to fix this, how, how good a person we are, we can't do it. You know why? Because we have a sin nature. Our sin separates us from God. We can't fix it. No matter how smart we are, whatever it is, we can't fix it. 
Only God can fix it. That's why he sent himself in the person of Jesus Christ to live, to be tempted as we are tempted, but yet to never sin, to overcome sin. And what is the only thing that sin could give us? Death. And so what did Jesus do? He died on the cross for us, took our sin upon himself and took it to the grave. But listen to me here. You need to understand this unequivocally. The reason why Jesus resurrected was not because he was just a good person. It was because he never sinned and he overcame sin at that moment so he could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father except through me. You can't work your way there. You can't be a good person and get there. You don't want to wait to the end and say, well, I'll just, I'll just throw the dice and hope. No! There's some of you here tonight that God is speaking to your heart. <coughs> He's telling you. He's drawing you to himself. You're feeling this sense of conviction in your soul. And you know things aren't right. And you've put this off maybe for years And tonight, maybe you need to do what I did on that Thursday night and lay down before God and finally, fully surrender to Christ and say, God, take my life and make it what you want it to be because it will never be what it's supposed to be until we come to Christ. It's that simple. Number three, God gave us a tremendous passion for people who don't know Christ. God gave us a passion. You know, he wants us to join him on mission sharing the gospel. He gave us a tremendous passion for the gospel. Debbie and I both. Let me tell you something. Church, every one of us here knows someone who don't know Christ. Is that true? Yes or no? What are we doing about it? And here's the deal. We probably have people around us who don't know Christ that we've never spoken to that we see every day. And if we would simply stop long enough and stop being distracted and having conversations and serving those people, loving those people, we might realize, oh, this is why God's placed me in their life because he wants me to be that conduit of his love, his grace, his mercy, his message that people can be redeemed. Listen, You can drink all you want to, but you'll wake up tomorrow with a headache. You can take all the drugs you want, but you'll be addicted. People in this world try all the time to overcome their their brokenness and hurt and pain by masking it and medicating it. But we can't. Because ultimately when we wake up, we realize that we're not God. In fact, we are separated from him. But something in our soul yearns to want a relationship with him because there's an emptiness in our souls. We were all created with that. A vacuum there that only God can fill. And your friends, they have that. Let me tell you something, young people. You may wonder, why I can't talk to my friends about Jesus because they won't be my friends anymore. Listen to me. If your friends aren't going to be your friends because you tell them about the greatest love of all that could ever possibly be, they weren't your friends in the first place. And let me tell you this, too. Let me tell you this when it comes to this. You think, well, my friends will never listen to me. They don't want to hear about this. They don't want to do that. Listen, how many of us, do, do, do all of us in here want purpose, yes or no? Purpose, yes or no? Do we want peace, yes or no? Do we want to be loved, yes or no? Do we want hope, yes or no? Do we want fullness of life, yes or no? Do your friends want that? If Jesus is the only way to find it, 
the most unloving thing we can do is to withhold that from them. Guys, we've convinced ourselves that people don't want to hear. A recent study from uh, Lifeway showed that over 73% of Americans said they would be willing to talk about their religious beliefs even with a stranger. But less than 5% of Christians are willing to talk to strangers. But here's the deal. We're not talking about strangers here. We are, we? These people you work with, they're not strangers. You work with them every day. These people that live in your neighborhood, they're not strangers. You've seen them all the time. They're on your, they're on your cheerleading squad. They're, 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 you teach with them. You played softball with them. Your kids are in the same leagues with them. These aren't strangers. These are people we see all over the community, right? We know they don't know Jesus. Well, but that's somebody else's responsibility. Here's what I found out. God is very specific in his sovereignty of what he does. He will put us in the right place. And I've, I've realized that God is always working around us if we'll slow down and wait and let him show us. Guys, every one of us here, God is called to be his messengers. And Debbie and I learned radically when she got sick that it's so easy. Listen, that friend of yours that's alive today could be gone tomorrow and we didn't give him a chance to come to Christ. It's just the truth. Well, you're trying to make us feel guilty. No, I'm just being real, guys. Listen, my wife was in aerobics class a week before she went into hospital. She was as healthy as she could be. And two and a half, three weeks later, she was this close to death. It could happen to anyone. We as the church need to get on our faces before God and get passionate about what it takes to reach people with the gospel. And I'm going to ask you to come tonight down here and to pray with us for that. Because here's the final thing. Final thing is real simple. If you go ahead and bring it up, I'll read it from the screen up here. God embodies life and love. About two weeks after Debbie got out of the hospital, she called me in the room one night. This is a true story. She said, David, God showed me something today that he wants me to tell you to tell others when you preach, to remind them. I said, okay, God gave me something today to tell you too as well. And by the way, when we shared, we found out it was the same thing. And here's what she, she told me. She said, God told me to tell you to tell the church that we're wasting way too much time on a bunch of stuff that simply does not matter. Are we investing in eternity? Guys, come on. How many of us are wasting time on stuff that don't matter? Spent four hours yesterday on TikTok. Really don't matter, does it? So church, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you tonight to come to this altar. I'm going to be standing right here. We have pastors on the other side. I ask you to come tonight. We'd love to pray with you. If you're struggling and you're facing an uncertain tomorrow, listen, we as a church because I'm going to put myself here. We love you, and we want to walk through whatever you're going through with you. So we're going to invite you to come tonight and let us know if we can pray for you. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and tonight you know without a doubt that God is calling you into a relationship with him, why don't you step out and come tonight? 
I know this for a fact. God is here tonight. And there's many of us here tonight that maybe we don't use that phrase, rededicate much anymore. But that's exactly what we need to do. We need to be reawakened, don't we? Reawakened to our... our to what, what, who God is and what's going on and how he calls us and what he wants to do in our life and all those kinds of things. You can't get too old for that. And you're not too young for it either. I remember my daughter at seven years old. She got baptized that Sunday. The next week she walks in the house. I'm laying on the couch and she says, she had her two best friends. She was holding her hands. She said, Daddy, I shared Jesus with Kristen and Nicole. Can you pray with them? Seven years old. Puts us to shame, don't it? So I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now and just bow your heads. Pastors are going to be down here in the front. I'm going to stand right here in the middle. And I'm going to invite you to come tonight. Please, take this seriously, guys. If God is touching your life, if you... You know things have just not been right with him. Why don't you step out and come? Look, if you've got friends and family members that don't know Christ and you need the strength to be able to share, why don't you bring that to the altar and lay that on the altar and just pray for them by name and say, God, help me. Give me strength to walk through this. Come on, just bow your heads right now. I'm going to ask you to begin to play. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask you as soon as I finish this prayer for you to step out and come. Come on, church. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you'll lead this invitation tonight, Father. I pray, God, that you'll draw us out, Lord, as you broke me that Thursday night, Father, and brought me back out of, that, out of pride and arrogance and all that was there. And, and Lord, just to, to be, be nothing, just lose everything but you. God, you need to bring the church back to that, God. We've been way too affluent for way too long, Father. We've become entitled and we've, we've, we've allowed ourselves to, to be distracted by so many things, God. But it is you. Lord, I pray that the young people here tonight will get a passion for their friends at school. And there'll be a revival breaking out in the schools of this community. For the workplaces, Father. God, you've started revivals before that have spread nationwide. And God, I believe it can happen even right now. So Father, tonight I pray that you will draw us out. If there's someone here that doesn't know you, I pray they will come tonight, Father. And just plainly say, I need Jesus in my life. Lord, break us and remake us in your image. Touch us, Father, for your glory. And use us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come? God's calling you out tonight. Would you come? Come on, church. Would you come tonight and just kneel together and pray and say, Lord, break my heart. Break my life for what breaks your heart and your life. Use us, God, for your glory. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.